Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and today we're joined by Anton Sakonikov. Anton will be reading The Art of Slicing Work, How to Navigate Unpredictable Projects. Anton, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Yvonne. Uh, anytime. So we're going to just dive right in. In a sentence or two, can you please tell us a bit about the book? Sure. So the book is a collection of stories, principles, and tools for anyone who leads projects where they have to expect surprises. I love that, expecting surprises. So I'm really curious, where did the idea for the book come from? I'm, I'm just, it's, what was that final straw that made you realize the yeah. book was necessary right now? All right. So this is, this is a professional, my professional background. So I'm a certified scrum trainer. So I earn money by providing business trainings to individuals and organizations and supporting them with becoming more they we say agile or adaptive to surprises. And um, the special part of this book, or what is so special about the book, is that it is um, I've I've written it for people who do not have any kind of background or who would even be lost if they heard anything that comes out of software. Because, you know, 30, 35 years ago, all those people like me, the nerds, we kind of uh started to codify how we manage how we do things when they work well and this this has reached quite tremendous amount of, of skill and in my practice for the last 10 years I, I just see a lot of people out completely independent of software uh, completely other places where being able to respond to surprises in your work environment becomes more and more important. Basically, this book is, a, is an attempt at transferring all of those tools from this jargon-filled world into the normal world of all the other people, <laughs> if I may put it this way. Yeah, I think that sounds great. Like, um, Especially as we all do have problems and surprises come up in business like day-to-day, -day, no matter the size of your business. So I think as someone who doesn't speak jargon, I appreciate the translation and that you do it narratively in a way that kind of makes it more accessible for some of us. Yeah. Could we have our first reading, please? Yes, let's start. So I'll, I'll start with the, the very first part, actually, with the introduction. Alan works for a prominent health food manufacturer. He enjoys his work and he loves his company's mission to create tasty, cost-effective, and above all, healthy alternatives to common snack foods. From time to time, new government regulations are set, and it's Ellen's job to ensure that his companies complies with them. He welcomes any opportunity to improve. He just wishes that he and his team were a little better at executing these projects. To put it mildly, none of Ellen's previous attempts to adapt his company to new regulation has felt particularly straightforward or productive. His team typically spends months on preparation only for unpredictable setbacks to occur during implementation. No matter how much time his team invests in planning, small and unintended consequences arise and compound over time. At the same time, because the company invests so much time in preparation, they are reluctant to adapt their plans when issues inevitably arise. 
Eventually, they have to stretch the rules and put in incredibly long hours just to meet the implementation deadline. This stressful phase occurs so regularly at the end of a project that it's become known company-wide as crunch time. During crunch time, Alan and the rest of his team have to improvise in order to get their intended results. Often this approach works, but the outcome is far from guaranteed. Moreover, working under such uncertainty is both exhausting and emotionally taxing. Even if the team delivers the project on time, it's hard to shake the feeling that they've missed something and that they could have performed better. After all, it's hard to celebrate victories when it's unclear whether you've truly won. Alan knows that he and his team have been following a broken process. Unfortunately, neither he nor anyone else at the company knows what else to do. And this is a dilemma that leaders like Alan face every day. They see firsthand how traditional, outdated approaches to unpredictable projects waste time and resources, demotivate team members and ultimately lead to either delays or outright failure. Yet they continue to practice them, hoping for better results. Then the pro- when projects fail, they respond by trying to prepare even more thoroughly next time. That approach doesn't make any sense when trying to manage an unpredictable project. If you find yourself in a hole, the solution is not to keep digging. And yet, in my experience, that's exactly what many companies do. Fortunately, there is a solution. Change your relationship to unpredictability. Instead of trying to avoid surprises, structure your work so you can learn from and adapt your plans in response to them. In this book, you will learn to do exactly that through a practice I call slicing work. Wonderful. Can you please briefly explain Scrum and what kind of projects your book applies to? Yeah. So, well, there is a Scrum guide and (laughs) uh, to put very simply, Scrum means that we work together in teams that learn from actual results from what they actually can observe as the result of their work. Instead of creating plans for a month and then implementing them for another month and then testing something for another month, and only then seeing whether something has worked or not. When you do Scrum, you very shortly, in very short cycles that at most are month-long but much, much more often they are one week long, you work together with people and produce something that you can actually get feedback to, that you can, that can be tested or can someone, whatever it is that you do, um, someone benefits from it. And this person who benefits from it can give you feedback to the result that you've created, say, in a week. And from that, you learn and you repeat. You learn and repeat. You learn and repeat. And that's a very different approach to working, and it's very well-based in the software world. But today, when you ask, where is it applied? So some of my clients and some of the examples from the book are from the world of public management. So we have government that is, you know, for the last hundreds of years, mostly government was about doing something very well, very precise, 100 millions of times. For example, when people move and want to register at the new place. But today, we have more and more aspects of life where change is so quick that those old government processes don't work. 
The same happens for other industry that I work with is nonprofits. People who are actually trying to solve a lot of, you know, social issues. They are dealing with surprises all the time. For example, you're uh, supporting elderly people who do not get uh, the medical attention they need because they don't have relatives, right? Imagine how many things are changing with respect to not just individuals. Obviously, everyone is a different individual. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is how their environment changes. For example, new law comes out, new crises come up, new uh, hospitals closing, and you need your organization to kind of adapt to this changing environment. And that's these are the surprises that I was talking about before. So when you, you when you know that if you plan for a very long time, probability is very high that your plan is just useless. You're not going to follow it. If that sounds like your work, that typically just this traditional form of planning isn't for you. That sounds so relatable, um, both to academia, but also in like looking at governments around. When you were speaking of hospitals closing, and I was thinking about the amount of libraries that have closed Absolutely. in the yeah. UK, and I feel like it's, um, I think for me, it feels unprecedented, though it's probably not, but just the amount of them. And to me, it's, it's quite shocking. And so I don't know if that's if that would now be considered a surprise when so many of them seem to be closing, but even though so many of them seem to be closing, it seems when you're in that library talking with the people in that community, yeah. they are still surprised when it, it becomes their library that's yeah. targeted. Say you work in the Ministry for Education and you part, you work in a department that is responsible for libraries or basically people being able to read. And now you're confronted with the situation when more and more libraries are closing. But now you can think about, well, what can we offer so that people who actually would like to read a book but you know, don't have the possibility to travel for 30, 30 miles to the next still open library, could still read a book. And then you can think of a project like, I don't know, a driving library, but will people actually use it? You don't know. And you will find out. And if you plan for it a couple of years and then you just do it and it, it, and it doesn't work, suddenly you wasted a lot of money. But what if you were able to just try it out in one particular place for one week? And then learn from it and try it and change it a little bit and try the next week and so forth. That would be, we would call it an agile approach to this. And government needs to learn this kind of, and not just to learn, uh, there is, we need, we need actually, in some places, we even need laws that allow for this because there is a lot of people working for government who would love to be impactful, who would love to be, help people, but very often they cannot because it's just not how things are supposed to work. That's so right. Okay. Um, could we have our second reading? Sure, sure. So this one is about self-organizations. Under right conditions, self-organization can occur spontaneously among people who've never met. This is always motivating and empowering. Here is something I've experienced over and over again. At large conferences, hundreds of attendees are asked to move all the tables on the right side of the room and all the chairs to the left so they can interact more easily. At once, everyone looks at each other before calmly standing up. The strong people begin picking up the tables, carrying them to one side, while the others take a chair or two and move them to the other side. If needed, cues form, and people help each other. 
In less than two minutes, the whole thing is done because everyone's self-organized. Each individual thought about how they could contribute best to the end result. Was there a chair in front of them? Or had it already been taken by their neighbor? If so, should they help carry a table instead? No one needs to tell them how to execute this project. They talk to each other, they sort it out, they act. Through simultaneous communication and decision-making, people coordinate amongst themselves. They take ownership. Imagine the coordination it would take if you were a manager who had to organize this chair and table moving process. How many different sets of direction would you have to give? How complicated might it be? How would you distribute all this information to them in a timely manner? And how would you track that they received it and what the results were? Think of all this management overhead. Luckily, all of this micromanagement isn't needed when people self-organize. But it also isn't enough just to tell people to self-organize and leave them to it. If a speaker said, make sure the room is free of obstacles, that'd be far too vague. Instead of collaborating, people would spend time figuring out what the obstacles were and where to put them. They'd need to agree on where to put the chairs and tables with the hundreds of people. Making decision might take a long time. Self-organization often fails in organizations due to lack of clarity. As a leader, you've got to create the conditions for self-organizations to happen, clearly defining the final result. The vertical slice of work plays a central role in this. So, Anton, you are a certified Scrum trainer, and I'm really curious about how you applied the strategies, lessons, stories in the book to mm. the making of the book. Hmm. To the making of the book. Right. So I'll be very honest. I'm not sure I've done it well. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now that the book is written uh, and it has taken a couple of years, I'm not sure <laughs> I've done it best, but I can, but there is a couple of things that I've done well, I think. So the first thing, right, uh, when you write a book is to think about what are the potential surprises that I could expect. It's in the nature of surprises that they are surprising. So you cannot, you know, think of all those surprises that could happen. But with some degree of self-reflection, uh, you can think about the parts of your project that you are least uh, knowledgeable of, least familiar with. And those are typically the things where surprises may happen. So, I've never written a book before, so this is the first time I'm writing the book. And this book consists of, of a large number of stories, of metaphors, of explanations. And if I were to do it, to, to write a book in a traditional way, I would just take some time, write it, have an editor help me writing it, and then have it proofread, and then, and, and, and so forth. And then it would go to the market and I would find out, oh, no one wants to read it. So instead of doing that, what I've done was I created a workshop, actually, where I would put this information, put this content that I'm putting, I've put in the book in front of people. And I've done this workshop and I've collected feedback. And I noticed what works and what doesn't work. All the things that don't work and didn't work, you won't find in the book. <laughs> and in fact, all of the stories that you will read in the book are have been at least 10 or 20 times tested with an audience. And I know that they typically produce aha moments. And in fact, there are 
because it's it's my own nature. I I don't like books that are too long. I don't like books where where authors repeat themselves too much. So I try to keep it very short and concise and only to to the point that I want to articulate with a with an example with a metaphor. So this is where I could say I applied this my own methodology to creating the book by, by basically trying this content out before it even became book in the form of a of a workshop or pieces of workshops. Oh, how lovely. Okay, so can we have our final reading? Yeah, sure. Hmm. At one of my workshops, a participant shared how he shifted his thinking from output-focused to value-focused with a personal project he'd been struggling with. He'd bought a country house for his family so he could spend weekends away from the city, and when they weren't, weren't there, he wanted to rent it out as an Airbnb. But the house wasn't ready. Not for his family or short-term rentals. It needed work, a lot of it. Like most people, he approached the renovation process in a traditional way. He met with an architect and a contractor, then approved their bids for costs and deadlines. But not long after work started, problems arose. Faulty plumbing was uncovered behind a wall. And a plumber had to be called in to fix it before the project could continue. Then there was a problem with electrical wiring. The project was held up once more while an electrician came out to make the repairs. The project was so unpredictable that costs and schedules were soon out of control. After experiencing so many difficulties, he decided to go another route, hiring a contractor who did it all. The contractor had a cross-functional business where all of the specialists in flooring, walls, plumbing, electrical, etc. approached the entire project as a team. Instead of renovating the house at once, or and by speciality, the team took a vertical approach. They worked room by room, starting on a new one only after they'd finished another. In the short term, it cost more to do it this way, but the value was much higher. After a couple of weeks, one bedroom, one small bathroom, and the kitchen became habitable, so the owner's family was able to start enjoying the house. He even started renting out the finished portion. Month after month, one room after the other became usable, increasing the family's comfort and the rent he could receive from visitors. Perhaps even more significant, the process was no longer stressful. When unforeseen problems like cracked walls, faulty plumbing, or non-functional wiring arose during a renovation, the team of experts consulted with each other and then with him. Together, they quickly decided what to do and fixed the problems. This is a terrific example of how self-organization reduces stress for managing unpredictable projects. It also shows how focusing on delivering value versus focusing on budget and deadlines often ends up being cheaper overall. What a great lesson to end on. Anton, where can we buy The Art of Slicing Work, How to Navigate Unpredictable Projects? There is uh, the website for the book. It's called slicingwork.com. Just all written together, slicingwork.com. And you will find all the ways you can buy the book there. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for being my guest or reading to us from the book and also giving us things that we can learn from right now. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Yvonne. 